Leadership matters. It has throughout American history, and it matters today as we still grapple with the lingering effects of the pandemic, seemingly intractable political disputes, and voices that deny the integrity of American elections. Today's guest pins his hope on the men and women in the arena, the public leaders who, in following their North Star, can lead the country to a brighter future. He's David Gergen, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public <laughs> affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week we're joined by David Gergen, advisor to president, CNN commentator, developer of young leaders, and author, most recently, of Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Jim and Wayne, it's good to see you and it's good to be engaged again with public television. Well, we can't think of someone with a better resume uh, for writing a book about public leadership and really offering some advice to public leaders of all stripes uh, about, that, about that undertaking. What drew you to public service and public life in the first place? I, I started out thinking I was going to be a baseball player, frankly. I was, I was a pretty decent picture, pitcher. Uh, I managed to throw the ball over the plate a fair, fair number of times because I was, I, was so, I was fairly tall. But then between like the ninth grade and the tenth grade, I grew six inches in, tw in, in, uh, six, in 12 months and I totally lost my control. Um, and uh, I tried out for the baseball team, high school baseball team that, that fall. And the first, the first tryout was in a gym because it was raining outdoors. So they put us in a gym. And I started throwing the ball. I got two or three pitches that were okay. But then I threw one, it was just a total wild pitch, and it went through a window. The pitch went through a window. It wasn't just a window, it was a window on the second floor. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided then and there I, I was not cut out to be a baseball player, but I could do I could write sports pieces for the local newspaper, the Durham Morning Herald and Durham Sun. And um, I wound up being a, being a sports writer and, and eventually covered obituaries for the North Shore for Durham. And after that, you know, covered state state politics as well as local politics, uh, and that was very very engaging. And I, I it, that got me very very involved in the national scene, and I was my fascination with it. When I went off to college at seventeen, I was going up to the Northeast for for college, and um, I remember Khrushchev was coming to visit uh, President Eisenhower in Washington, and my my newspaper, of all things, asked me to cover the to cover Khrushchev's visit. So I got credentials and I got on the, I got on the bus, the press bus, one thing or another. It was fabulous. Loved it. Uh, and you can imagine how exciting that was. So that that also drew me into public life and more and more. But especially through civil rights, I became um, deeply engaged in the civil rights of our time. Well, you know, Major League Baseball's loss, I think, is the country's gain. You've served <laughs> four presidents uh, in your career, yeah. uh, three Republicans, one Democrat. Is such yeah. a career with bipartisan credibility like that even possible today? Well, I wouldn't glorify it too much. I, I first got in with, with Watergate, and I, well, then I got out with Whitewater. <laughs> 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 yeah. So um, 
I, I think that uh, it's it's very it's very hard to do these days to just go switch parties like that. And, and, and it wasn't easy for me. I can show you the scars on my back if you'd like. Um, but the, uh, uh, the the truth is uh, now now if you work with the other side, if you just cooperate with them, it's often seen as a betrayal by your own party. Um, so it's uh, we just had Liz Cheney up here at the uh, Kennedy School where I'm talking to you from, um, and um, you know she she spoke here and it was very moving. But what I was delighted about was that a lot of students turned out and cheered her. They, she got a standing ovation at the end of her talk, which indicated to me that at least there's still room in some quarters uh, for bipartisanship and sort of working across the aisle. But we've got a long way to go to get back to where we were. Uh, you know, the three of us all can all remember different days when we had different different times um, when it was honorable to, to work with people on the other side. And uh, that's how progress was made. And that, that was true most of our history. But in this latest benighted period, uh, you know, it's been less true. So, David, you've spent more than five decades in public service. Why is public yeah. service so essential? Well, if I, public service is essential. I'm glad you raised the question, Wayne, the, uh, uh, because it's uh, we, we belittle some 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 quarter services belittled. But in fact, you know, uh, what holds the country together usually, or leave the glue that's helped to hold the country together, has been the fact has been in the many occasions when we were uh, all had common purpose, especially in wars, uh, and we were all on the same side, or mostly on the same side. And in a times, and those were times of uh, serious public uh, sacrifice. Um, but people did that, and and it made a made a major difference in the quality of life in the country. Uh, and it, the war had the war had a lot uh, a lot that was very binding for us. You know, it was very helpful to the health of our democracy that a lot salt and stall from this great state of Massachusetts would be learn how to you know salute a kid from a Polish kid from Brooklyn. That was very democratizing for us, and um, you know we've we've lost that sense. We now have elites, and we have the people who felt they're, they're who feel that they're being left behind, and we have to get back. Same thing we learned to do in the battlefield. What we have to learn how to do in, in our public life, and that is leave no one behind. So you use the term common purpose. Uh, yeah. Do we as Americans today have common purpose? Well, if we do, we sure as hell not apparent. Um, the, uh, I, I think at some fundamental level, we're still mostly patriotic. You know, we did come together on 9-11 for a few days. Didn't last long. But remember that whole scene with George W. Bush uh, up, uh, up in New York and, you know, and, and the people who were in the work working on the World Trade Center ruins yelled out, we can't hear you, and, and Bush responded, yes, but we can hear you, and the whole world can hear you, and we know what you've done and are doing for this country. Uh, there was a time when, you know, they marched in our in sympathy and in, in, uh, in Canada, all across Canada on 9-11. On there was, you know, countries in Europe, Western Europe, all marched in uh, unison with the United States and supported the United States. So, uh, but those, those were sort of a twinkling in time because uh, soon thereafter we went back to business as usual and business as usual has become much harsher uh, in these days. So I do think it's very hard to re restore common purpose. I must tell you, I don't think it's out of the question. I, I happen to be someone who's a, a, a short-term pessimist. 
uh, but a long-term optimist. And if I might explain just for a minute. Please. Look, I, I, we're going through a very rough period right now. And from everything I can tell from my friends in, in the financial world and the economic world, it's going to get rougher in the next few weeks and next six months. Uh, we're, we're, it's going to be a tough, tough ride for a lot of people. And the number of people in this country are going to get really badly hurt um, by the, a wicked recession. Some people tell me it's going to be worse than 08, 09. Uh, so, so that's coming. But I think if you look beyond that, if you look over the horizon, you can spot young people coming out now whom I think have still have a, 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 a idealism. If anything, they've embraced it heavily. They've started, they've begun startups, you know, nonprofit startups all over the place. Uh, we have people in their 20s and 30s here now who, who are making a significant difference in the quality of our life. You look at what happened in, in, in Florida when, after that shooting down at the Parkland and the Parkland kids, as we call them, David Hogg and others, you know, uh, formed a just within a matter of days, uh, formed an organization that would to appeal on gun control. And they, you know, lo and behold, we got the major, first major gun control legislation passed in a long time you know, here on their watch in part because of them. Or you look at what's happened overseas to uh, uh, you know, to Malala, who was uh, in, in Pakistan, and uh, or Thunberg, Greta Thunberg from Sweden, and how these were these were young people in their 15, 18, 16, 17, 18 years old, who were moving their nations. You know, one of them got a Nobel Prize, youngest Nobel Prize in history, um, and so they stirred our hearts. Uh, I think in the same way, they're, they're Zelensky in, in Ukraine is stirring people's hearts. Uh, and, and I think giving common purpose in, in many ways to Western nations overall. Um, so, you know, so there there are, I don't think we should should give up yet. I, I think if anything, we need to double down on service. Uh, and from I'm, I'm very biased on this, but I strongly believe that if we encouraged every 18, every every young person in the country between 18 and 24 to spend a year after high school, during the college, after college, to spend a year giving back, you know, working in a local hospital, working in a schoolroom, you know, working on climate change and first responders. Uh, There's so many things that, we, that that could be done that would improve the quality of life in our country and at the same time give us a whole new generation of people, of servant leaders, people who really believe that in the uh, how important it is that we learn to live with each other. Um, and that we do try to live up to our ideals. They're not just empty platitudes. Um, yeah, so I, I see evidence that that's happening. It may not, whether it's going to follow through or not, whether it's going to get to where we need to be or not. The, the truth is we have hundreds, even thousands of young people now who are engaged. We need hundreds of thousands. Uh, I happen to be for something called national service, and that is the 18 to 24-year-old. Deal. And I think we can we can get that passed. It's going to make a, a major difference. I would suggest you follow the path. Watch now in the next few weeks. I don't know when this will be broadcast, but watch what happens in Maryland. Uh, you know, a state not far away, in some ways similar to Rhode Island. Um, and and, and we're, uh, Maryland is about to elect uh, its first black governor, first black governor in the United States for a long time since. You know, we've only had, you know, we had we had one here in Massachusetts with Deval Patrick, of course. Um, but nonetheless, there's a fellow named Wes Moore, M-O-O-R-E, who is going to be elected in, in uh, 
in Maryland. He's, a, he's ahead by 32 points at this point. Um, and he is going to bring a platform based on service, encouraging people to get into service. And I think he could, he could become a model of, um, and Maryland could become a model of, of how to have you know, states more, you know, more, more joined. And, you know, if you, if you've got a governor who wins by 30 points, you've got the makings of a, a real uh, coalition. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is David Gergen. You might recognize him from his contributions to CNN over the years, but his contributions to public service are the stuff of legend an advisor to four presidents, three Republicans, and one Democrat. He's also a professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. David is on Twitter at David underscore Gergen. I'll spell that for you. David underscore G-E-R-G-E-N. Yeah. You know, David, you um, you mentioned your your roots in journalism, and I know at one point in your yeah. career you were also the editor of U.S. News and World Report. Uh, one what? of the th one of the things that that strikes me uh, repeatedly is that so much of uh, cable news, in particular, and you've spent a lot of time yeah. on CNN. I think a lot of people know you uh, from your time yep. on CNN. So much of CNN's coverage and other cable networks' coverage focuses on the horse race in American politics yes. and spends so little time talking about the kinds of things that you just talked about, like national service, right. like some of the right. things that might actually stitch us back together as a country. Why, right. are the, why are those platforms so misaligned with the kinds of things that a lot of people think the country needs to be able to keep us together? Well, there's a there's a chase for profits, as you well know. You're talking about the cable you know, folks are all you know for, for profit, and here you, you know, you're on public television, and, and we see you as a nonprofit organization. I, I happen to think there's a lot of, of value in having a non nonprofit organization because we can we can focus on the deeper news, as you say, the news and the news beneath the news, which is really the important part, right? Um, and uh, you know, so I I, I, I want to be respectful. Uh, after I do have a contract with CNN, and I, I, it's a privilege to have, um, and I admire much of what they do. I think they covered Ukrainian the Ukrainian war beautifully. Yeah. Um, but there are times when I worry that we get. You know, there was a time uh, five years ago, seven years ago, I was really concerned, as I think Jeff Zucker was, that we were giving too much time to uh, Donald Trump. And you know because it because it's so because you know you if you put Trump on the air you'd get a you'd get a crowd of two or three million people come out to uh, to go to watch you, and and if you put George uh, Jeb Bush out there, you know you could hold his his uh, rally in a library. Um, it was just you know so there was all the incentives were to put put Trump on a lot, and I think that wound up being sort of one sided and. Uh, 
you know, that there's an enabling quality to that, that, that we all have to sort of take responsibility for. Uh, I think, I think I happen to think CNN is, has, has a record as the fairest of the three major uh, and the most balanced of the three major um, uh, broadcasting areas or, or, or channels. Now, um, it's a, um, in, the, in the current environment, you know, I think the danger is we pay too much time, give too much time and exposure to extremists on both sides. Yeah. Um, you know, we're very, very tough, of course, on Trump and, and his minions. Uh, but that's because I think he holds the most responsible job in the world. And, and if they're going to lie to us and, and parade around with all sorts of antics that are, you know, that are I, I think, uh, discouraging for so many and distasteful, uh, that's going to get a lot of coverage. Um, uh, and sometimes, sometimes I wish, I mean, I, sometimes I think the border, the, we, we need, we need to find a way and newspapers in particular need to find a way to get back to a time, um, when the news was on front page and the opinions were on the opinion page. And I think those lines have been blurred so badly. It's really, really hard to figure out what's, what's, what's hard news and factual news versus what's opinion, how much is it being slanted because of that blending. Uh, and I think it's pretty substantial. And, uh, you know, that to me is sort of, is part of a, it, it may not be a, a disinformation, but it, can, it is a misinformation. Uh, maybe it's unintentional, but there is a misinterpretation of a lot of what's going on. Well, so let's turn to Hearts Touched with Fire, which is a, a really remarkable read and uh, heartfelt advice, I think, for, for uh, public leaders who are emerging, who are at various different points in their right. careers. One of the central arguments, it seems to me, though, in the book is that leadership matters, and especially in a democracy, leadership yes. matters. Yes. Could you yeah. explain that for our audience? Sure. And it is absolutely true that leadership does matter, and it's absolutely true that leadership can make a difference if it's well-practiced, if it's wisely practiced. Um, but the... Uh, you know, I, I I think since time immemorial, going back over 2,500 years, you will find since the beginnings of Western civilization, uh, a cry for leadership and a cry for somebody to bring order uh, from from periods when there you know there's a lot of strife and there's civil wars going on and there you know frequent conflicts over territory and water and other uh, other assets. Um, and history, human history is littered littered with stories of uh, of conflicts and wars, um, and you know, families you know had no protection. So a lot of a lot of people started turning to government to begin protecting them. That was one of the you know you you look at anyone Edmund Burke. If you go back and look at you know what that argument was all about, it was that you have you 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 do that life in in the jungle is short and brutish. Uh, and you need to you need to move beyond that. And leadership is intended to help you form a civilization or a nation or a society, uh, which is well anchored in a set of values that has some sense of moral purpose that's respectful of, of others. That increasingly we want leaders who are empathic. We want leaders who are adaptable, and that they have the kind of qualities that they can move with the times. You know the kind of uh, leadership we had in the 19th century doesn't fit the 21st century. We and and we used to have a theory of leadership 
that a leader was a, was, a, was a quote great man. We had this, it was called the great man theory of leadership, and that there was one individual that essentially was going to come in riding in on a white horse and save everybody, and uh, and that's ca captured you know photographically in my mind in a picture, one of the most famous pictures of John F. Kennedy when he was president, and he's in the Oval Office all alone at dusk. He's sort of hunched over at what looks like a, a globe. Uh, and it's still clear that the weight of the world is upon him and that uh, the country is looking to him as a singular feature of the person who's going to get, you know, rally the country and, and get us out of the ditch. Um, and he was able to rally the country at times, as he did say, when he when he said, we're going to get a, put a man on the moon and we're going to do it within a decade. And we all got stirred up because nobody ever thought you could do that before. And we didn't have the science or the engineering to support that. We were, you know, we, we were pretty much removed from it. But... Kennedy said we we're going to get to the moon, and by God, they got thousands upon thousands of people who are Americans. I think there was around 300,000 Americans worked on the, the moon moonshot, and it did. It, it we didn't. It was true. We and the skeptics were right in one sense. But it didn't take ten. It, you know, we didn't get there in ten years. We got there in seven years. We got there in seven years, and it stirred the imagination of the country. So there, there are times when a great man works, but more more recently. I think what captures the way leadership is practiced uh, is when um, Obama was president and we had uh, the United States had Osama bin, bin Laden in their gun sights. Uh, and the, the picture came out of the Situation Room afterwards. There's, there's Obama watching avidly as our, our helicopters go in. But then there, around him is the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the head of the, the, the Joint Chiefs, you know, the head of CIA. Um, you know, there were seven or eight people in the picture. That That's because today, increasingly, leadership is about teams. How, you know, as the old saying, there is no, there is no letter I in the word team. Uh, it is a different, it's a different concept. Uh, I just had General McChrystal come teach my class. And it was wonderfully interesting about the way um, business and war has been conducted over the centuries. It keeps changing, evolving. So, you know, when we were in, when we went into Iraq, we had a hugely big advantage over the the, uh, the uh, terrorists in, in Iraq. Uh, but yep, they had a hit and run uh, situation where they could they could come in, hit you at night, at night, and get away. It was really hard to catch them. Very hard to catch them. We had to change our whole way of uh, of structuring our our counterterrorism effort. Uh, it took several years to get it done. You know, but we eventually got Zarqawi, we got we got Bin Laden and uh, these other people, and and we've largely won. But it took seven, eight, nine years, so of, of a different kind of leadership. And so we have to be alert to the idea, you can't you can't just have one way of doing things. You've got to have it adaptive to to the environment in which a leader finds herself or himself. But once you do that, then you know I think that an awful lot does rest and. Of uh, the success of a society rests largely upon the quality of its leader. So, David, one of the eternal questions is, are leaders born or can they be made? What's your take uh, on that? Yes, I know. It's an old chestnut. Uh, the truth of the matter is, I think some people are born with greater proclivities, with greater capacity for leadership. But uh, I, I must tell you that no, nobody, it's, you, can't, you can't lead with just what you're born with. You've got to develop yourself over a long period of time, and I think I think the real answer is is that leaders are self-made. It's it's the process that leadership is a journey. 
It's all about, you know, first trying to understand the world in which we live, to have, to have self-awareness, um, but also to have self-mastery. I work for Nixon, and I can just tell you that he was a really smart guy, the best strategist I've ever met. But he had these terrible demons inside him that he had never learned to control. And, you know, so you, 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 the, the, you started leadership, you start from within, and it has everything to do with self-awareness, self-mastery. After that, it's about learning a lot of skills. You know, and, you know, whether learning how to manage your boss, learning how to lead up and learning how to lead sideways to groups outside, learning how to lead down, all that, learning how to communicate, how to motivate, how to deal with crises. There are lots and lots of skills you have to learn. But I do think that at the end of the day, the leaders who are the, the, the best are ones who've had a lot of experience at it, who have failed. I, I frankly don't trust someone as president unless they fail somewhere along the way, because I like to see how they respond how do they respond with honesty and integrity you know or do they try to blow it off um that, that matters a lot when you see so you have these moments uh, with leaders periodically where you can see just a flash you can get the, you get it okay suddenly you get it sometimes donald trump walks on stage and you can just listen to him for the couple, first couple of minutes and you that's all you hear need to hear because he is who he is who he is and that's been true of other people We've got uh, about 45 seconds left here, David. Sure. You know, when, when, okay. when you uh, look at the future, I know that you said you're still a, a long-term optimist, but yes. what can we all as citizens do uh, to help ensure that that future is positive, that it is optimistic, and that we do preserve American democracy? I think it's very, very important that we who are older begin to pass the torch much more frequently and much earlier than we're doing now to give responsibility to the young generations that are coming. And then to, and to step back, to, get, to stop clinging to the curtains in the Oval Office, to, get, to, to step back and allow other people to govern the country while you provide to presidents and to other leaders their, your wisdom, your background. You can do a lot to help people. We need to do as much as we can to prepare the next generations, the X generation, the millennials, the Z generation. Those are our future. Our young, the young men and women, they're often our kids or our grandkids. We have to prepare them for lives of service and of leadership. And I guarantee you, they can get us out of this. And that is what Hearts Touched with Fire does. David Gergen, thank you so much for being with us. That thank you both very much, Jim. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. That thank is you. all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. He's Wayne, I'm Jim, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.